Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Ask the Experts. We are both co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, as well as lenders with First National. Our guest today is also one of First National's long-standing members. It's Andrew Drexler, Assistant Vice President. The skill set that he brings to the table that we're going to talk about today is large and complex deals. He's got a long history of First National. He's done some of our, our biggest deals. And most recently and notably is The Well, for anybody familiar with that project here in Toronto. Uh, we're going to talk about construction financing in the apartment arena, and we're also getting into student housing because Andrew has done a lot of that more specialized asset type. But I'd like to, at this point, welcome Andrew to Ask the Experts. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. So we always kick off the same way. I mean, uh, you know, Aaron and I know your story. Of course, we've worked side by side for many years, but the bulk of the participants today, of course, don't. Can you share your background in real estate and how you got to where you are today? Sure. First, you call me long-standing, so that makes me sound old. So I am old, I guess. I've been at First National for almost 20 years now. Came right out of university. I was uh, very fortunate to land here really close to Morita's, our co-founder, his desk. And, uh, you know, it's been a, an amazing 20 years, really. Uh, when I first started as an analyst, Maury was handling uh, our largest client at the time, a foreign investor who had bought a lot of real estate. And, um, you know, at that time, they, are, they were fairly short-staffed here in Canada. So there was a lot of due diligence. There was a lot of work on the acquisition side as well as the financing side. And, uh, you know, we were uh, lucky to have to do all that work. So for me personally, that was the foundation of, uh, you know, the building block of my foundation in terms of learning. I got to learn about all the different asset classes and not just the financing side, but the acquisition side, you know, structuring deals, understanding returns, understanding real estate, uh, you know, and as the years went on, that that really came in handy because as we started financing a lot more of the complex deals, I could always look at a deal from both the uh, lender side and the owner side, and that's come in handy. And, uh, you know, as the years went on, you know, my role shifted to that of more of an advisor. We we think of uh, our team as as an extension of the borrowers. You know, we'd like to put ourselves in their shoes and and try to figure out ways to as to how to make them more money, save the money, and mitigate the risk, and and think about financing strategies that that maybe really help their development plans and their growth plans. So you know, it's it's been an amazing twenty years. I've been very fortunate to be really close to Maury. He's been a an unbelievable mentor and friend all these years. And, uh, and it's been fun. You know, I look forward to hopefully 20 years more, but uh, it, it's been a great, we're in a, this is an amazing company, so innovative, and uh, it gives us all the tools to, to really be of good use to our borrowers. Anyway, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So let's, let's have a good chat. Thanks, Andrew. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. I have a couple comments. One, Adam calls you longstanding, but I'm pretty sure his kids are older than yours. So I'm not sure what that says about <laughs> Adam. One, two, you know, I, I actually probably never told you this, but I've always kind of considered you a mentor. I, you know, we have, we're, we're kind of joking before the, we go live with this interview, both Adam and I and Andrew basically have the exact same backstory. It's kind of like came out of university, got a job at First National and here I am today. So it's not a lot, not a lot of really interesting jumps around, but I got for, I was fortunate enough to sit in a desk outside of Andrew's office for three or four years, I, I got the pleasure of listening to you on a regular basis, talk to your clients. And, and what I will say that I, the, I'll reiterate what you just said, that your exposure to the equity side is so valuable. I mean, I think a lot of us in lending get exposed to the debt side. Without the equity side, it, you don't have both pieces of the puzzle. I think for Adam and I, we can probably say that our exposure has been through these opportunities to interview, and that's the only way that I have any exposure to the equity side. Otherwise, otherwise, I'd be I'd be missing that piece. Anyway, that's that's all I've got to say about that. Let me let me jump into this, Andrew. Why don't we start with construction financing, and let's just lay the foundation first. What the what the construction marketplace looks like today, from a debt side and and perhaps from an equity side also. Sure, you know, for for a long time there weren't any new rental developments, mostly because of three reasons. Number one, the rents were too low. Number two, interest rates were too high. And number three, the tenant's profile was very different than today. Today's renter is sophisticated. You know, they, whether you're catering to the young professional, the retirees that are cashing in on their home equity, or the international students, 
these tenants are very sophisticated. They demand great buildings with amazing amenity packages. You know, they want the latest technologies, whether it's the superior HVAC systems, which, you know, as we know now over the past year and a half, it's come in handy. The ability to control heating and cooling from their mobile devices, their rooftop pools and barbecues, the pet stations and the high-end gyms. You know, these are these are amenities that today's renters want, and they make the choice to live in these new buildings, and they have the means to pay for it, whereas in the past, that wasn't the case. In addition, the finance thing, so, so because of this demand, you have, you've had rents rising dramatically. You've had, obviously, we live in a, in a historically low interest rate environment, and the returns are a lot better. In addition to that, you've had cities that have made a big effort to intensify transit nodes. And so all these put together has led to a lot more development of purpose-built rental buildings. You know, the financing environment is a lot more conducive. There are much better financing options, much better strategies, uh, higher leverage points. And all of this has has been conducive to a great environment to build. But the one point I, I do think it's worth mentioning is that, you know, not all new construction has revolved around luxury apartment buildings. Uh, you know, there are buildings of all sizes and shapes in all parts of Canada, from small towns to to big cities. And and we've built a lot. Now, the one part that does still lack is is the affordable housing. You know, the, the governments are definitely all in in terms of realizing that we do have a housing shortage in our big cities. You know, it's it's something that we have to continue to work on. It's something that that everybody needs. I mean, we are a great country and our society has to all come together to find a way to continue to build more affordable housing. But it has been a dramatic improvement in the mental construction over the past five to seven years. So you've identified that we're in a you know, great boom now, but that was preceded by decades of very little activity. So if historically, it's not the norm to be in a, in a, in a building boom. What do you see that could derail our current, our current uh, activity or slow it down? So, you know, I, I think the trend will continue in that the two biggest drivers, tenant demand, are still gonna be, is still going to be there. And at the same time, you know, the home affordability issue in Canada is here to stay. I mean, people cannot afford to buy homes, and but but they do have good incomes. They do want nice places to live. And I think that construction will continue. You know, the major Canadian cities are thriving. Obviously, we've got immigration, we've got job growth, we've got good incomes. But again, this housing market does continue to, to cause problems in terms of the ownership side. So I do think that demand will continue. I think in terms of risks, I mean, look, construction risk is a concern. Projects are becoming more complicated. They're becoming more integrated. There are, there are much more mixed use projects, higher level of amenities, higher level of higher quality of finishes. And the one thing that's significant is that input costs are, are really uh, rising steadily, right? I mean, we hear about uh, concrete, we hear about formwork, we hear about steel windows, Almost every single input in construction has gone up. How long that's going to continue, I'm not sure. But very rarely do you have costs that go up substantially and then come back substantially. So usually they go up and they come back a little bit. So costs, I think, will continue to go up. So that could derail it. I think, you know, general contractors and subcontractors are facing a real labor shortage. You know, a lot of these really experienced GCs and, and their trades are losing people all over the place to some countries in, in certain cases to retirement. And a lot of these contractors are going from, you know, from A teams to D teams. You know, there's not nothing in between. So the labor shortage is a problem. I think the Canadian productivity level has dropped steadily over the years. I know in, uh, I was reading a stat where in Ontario alone from 2014, we're down 14%. So take rising construction costs, add in a lower productivity rate, Add in delays in construction from approvals to zoning to development, and and certainly you know you can have less construction. You know as we recover now, as we come out of COVID, I think that the governments are spending a lot of money, and a lot of money is being directed towards infrastructure. As we know, infrastructure projects cost a lot and are very lengthy. That will put a further strain on on development. You know if you're looking to build rental buildings, I think you always have to worry about the leasing risk. You're trying to predict rents that are three, four, five years out. Will the ancillary revenues be there? You know, are you going to get all the revenues, all the parking, all the storage? You know, that's a question. You know, there's a possible oversaturation in our in our you know major cities of high end product. Although I do think demand will continue to meet supply, 
And I think the biggest risk from my perspective in terms of building rental buildings is really interest rates, right? I mean, interest rates ultimately drive cap rates, which ultimately drive valuations. That's not something that people can control. And, and certainly valuations can go offside in the future. But I will tell you, I was, uh, Maury and I were on a great call with a, with a really good client yesterday. And they said, you know what, Andrew, we can't control interest rates. We don't build our business plan necessarily around interest rates. We build it on building great buildings in great spots in markets that, that will support it. And that's what we can control. We can't really control interest rates. But I am here to tell you that with good advisors, you can certainly mitigate your risks, both on the interest rate and leasing side. That raises a good question then, you know, Andrew, you, you listed a number of things there. So let's just rehash labor challenges. We've heard this now for a number of years, right, where you have a whole bunch of aging construction workers with, you know, 30, 40 years of experience and then a big void and then a whole bunch of younger construction workers coming in. So there's that sort of brain drain or, or transfer of knowledge that, that needs to happen very quickly. You, you mentioned productivity uh, decreasing. Uh, I think you said fourteen percent alone in Ontario. Construction costs rising. Like you said, it's basically across the board. Lumber is the one in the news to the days. But last year it was windows. Before that, it was steel. I mean, it always seems to be some commodity that's got a rising price. And then interest rates. I mean, I think fortunately interest rates have worked in favor of not just developers, but all but all commercial real estate owners across the board. But you know, with all that said, you, they can't control interest rates. They can't control costs. Uh, and then there's a proliferation of luxury units that have come into the market because, you know, when you're running your performance, you, you kind of need to hit that. I don't know. I'll pick a number. I don't know where it is today. I, I, I'm all discombobulated because of COVID. But pre-COVID, everyone was saying it's four bucks. It's four and a quarter. That's what I've got to achieve to get the yields that I need to satisfy my investors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it sounds like I'm just painting a really negative story here that it was going to kibosh development going forward. I don't think that's true, but maybe just explain what it is that developers are seeing and why they're continuing to buy land, why they're continuing to you know submit for bylaw amendments. And, and it, it feels like there's still a ton of momentum in apartment development. Well, you know, pre-COVID, it, it's a good question and it's it, it's a real concern for sure. But I think the people that we're seeing develop tend to be there's a lot of institutional capital. There are a lot of families that have owned real estate for a long time that, that have made good money in apartments. And, you know, when we look back 30, 40, 50 years ago and, and you see, you know, the Ladner families and the Green families, and you see these people that had this vision of building these hundred unit buildings way back. And you're thinking, wow, what visionaries? I think that today's people will look at it the same, which is, look, we're investing with a 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizon. Do we believe in our cities? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Canada's got some amazing cities, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, you know, Calgary's struggling, but even Calgary will come back, Edmonton, the East Coast, Halifax. I mean, these are great places where people from around the world want to come. Over the past year, we've seen rents, high-end rents come down, and we've seen vacancies in the downtowns. So it's, it's a very similar story in Vancouver and in Montreal and Toronto. It's just you haven't had international students. That makes up a big part of, of our downtown renters, you know, you haven't had, you know, businesses open, right? So I think it's hard to believe that we're all going to want to want to work from home for the rest of our lives, right? I'm, I'm in the office today. I'm so excited to be here. There's nobody here, but I'm excited. So eventually we'll come back. Eventually restaurants will open, bars will open. You'll want to see your friends again. We'll be back in the office and, and the downtowns are thriving. I mean, these are great cities where we should have development. And, and pre-COVID, we had a supply issue, right? It, we, we couldn't meet the demand that was out there. Our vacancy was at zero downtown for all buildings, condos and high-end rentals. You know, and, and we've seen new construction in, in small towns that it gets, the lease up is, is done in six months. So there's demand out there because again, today's renter is very sophisticated and they've seen those beautiful amenities and beautiful buildings and that will continue. So I think we have to get over the, the concern of what happens in the next six months or 12 months and, and continue to build that vision for the for the long run. And that will make a difference. But the second part of that is we need to find a way to build affordable housing. I mean, look, we can't, you know, we want people that work downtown to be able to live downtown, right? Just because, you know, maybe you have a, a lower paying job doesn't mean that, that, you know, you can't live and you have to commute an hour and a half to get into your workplace, right? We should be able to figure out housing for all people at all levels, not, not just high-end buildings. Yeah, it, it, the, the point you made about you know, not thinking about just the next six months or 12 months is very valid. I know that you have a lot of institutional clients and 
you know, I'm sure everybody's heard the line about thinking about the next quarter century, not just the next quarter, and that would definitely be applicable for for COVID. But there is one other shift I wanted to ask you about. I mean, uh, I do like the positive message you just shared. I've got one more headwind question, and then we'll we'll shift back to more more positive stuff. But uh, the developers yield, you know, the the what they're building to, and the gap between that and just going out and buying new. I would just go and buying existing product. The gap between those two cap rates represents the increased risk of building versus just buying a stabilized asset and getting cash flow on day one. And the gap between those has shrunk pretty substantially over the last five years. I mean, maybe Andrew, you can comment better than I can, but it feels like there's an expectation that you should be building to a you know, 200 beat difference over market cap rates if you're going to be building. And now it can be as low as, as 50 beeps. Is that on your client's radar? Does it matter? Is it just the lay of the land? Is it the influence of condo pricing in the marketplace that's shrunk that gap? And what's your thoughts on taking on development risk for a smaller yield increase? Well, that was a lot of questions in there. So <laughs> I think I, I think that you know you have to compare apples to apples, right? So uh, first of all, if you're developing new buildings, the question should be: Is there an opportunity to buy brand new buildings? Uh, in the market today that have already been stabilized. In our experience, the people that have built uh, brand new assets tend to keep them. Not many people become merchant builders. And so we're dealing with, again, the institutional the institutional par- uh, partners. We're talking about, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, maybe Rio Can or Choice Street, families that have owned, like Shiplake that have owned assets for a long time. These companies are building to keep. Right, there are very few that are actually building to flip, and so the question is: Would a, you know, would a, a builder that's building these buildings today would they have the opportunity to buy something? I'm not sure that any of those new buildings have traded. Now, if you're comparing it to buying existing stocks, the existing stock is trading at two percent cap rates now, two and a half percent cap rates, and the the premise for that is that there's a lot of upside in the rent to be able to buy these units over time, turn over the units and then raise the rents to a substantially higher level and then sell. So I think your point is correct in that development yields have come down a lot. I mean, it used to be that you could build apartments for 6% cap rates, five and a half. Now we're probably closer to four. But what you get at the end of the day, if you've truly done it right, if you've done your homework and you've built in the right area and you've built the right target market and you've built the right building with the, the nice mix of amenities that people look for in in good transit nodes and you're building with a with a again a 10 15 year horizon i think that it doesn't matter if you're coming out of the ground in a three percent cap rate today or four percent cap rate because you can place long-term debt on it which is cheaper than that and then as the time goes on if we believe in this demand supply imbalance you're going to see people that are going to be demanding these new buildings again versus the living in the older buildings that have you know have different aspects that are attractive, but certainly can't compare with the buildings that you're building today. So development cap rates have definitely come down, but so has the long-term debt and so has the cost of borrowing. So then, you know, it, it evens out a little bit more. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. We always focus on cap rates. And if you want to know why, you can go back to a, a first national perspective that Adam and I recorded last month about financing 101 and why cap rates are kind of on our mind. But, you know, out of all the interviews that Adam and I have done, it seems to be something that very few institutional investors think about. It's just not on their radar. Their IRR calculations are a quarter century long. And so they're kind of saying, yeah, I, I guess I'm building at a two and a half cap or whatever it is. And the delta over interest rates is whatever it is. But you know, I'm thinking 20, 25 years old. So it is ultimately irrelevant. You know, Andrew, Adam and I do this a lot. We often interview people from First National. We try really, really hard not to make it a First National commercial. So I'm going to preface that with my, with for my next question. One of the things, and this is not really a First National question. It really is just lenders at home. Every lender across the country experiences this and is frustrated by it. But there, there's nothing more aggravating than getting a call from a client saying, "Hey, I shovel in the ground." permits in hand, ready to go. I need financing, you know, and I need it my first advance in six weeks from now. And always our first thought as lenders across the board is really like, why didn't you call me four years ago when you started this process? Because did you think about this? Did you think about that? So maybe just talk about you, how you go through the process with your clients 
in general and just what that looks like and the advantages and why if you are a developer out there, like the second call you should make when you're thinking about developing something is to your lender. Again, a good question, Aaron. I, I, I think, uh, you know, it used to be that financing was fairly easy and it's become a lot more complicated. I mean, you have a lot more options, but uh, the financing becomes just as important as, as what you're going to build because, you know, ultimately you need to create a financing strategy with the takeout financing in mind, right? So first you have to start off by asking yourself, am I building this to hold for the long term? And if yes, then I have to think about my long-term takeout mortgage, which then brings me back to what the construction financing is going to look like, or am I going to be a merchant builder and develop this to sell it? We help our our clients with the financing strategies early on. I mean, pre-development, we talk about how do we mitigate your interest rate risk, which we've said is the biggest risk you're probably going to have. Should you use CMHC construction financing or conventional financing? Should you incorporate affordable housing in your development? That changes your financing strategy dramatically. Is there, are there any government programs that you can tap into for, for pre-development funds? You know, and the other thing is that, you know, we, have, you know, we're, we're the largest construction lender in the industry. We've got a, currently a $3 billion construction pipeline, but we've been doing this for, you know, close to 10 years. And so we've seen, we've financed and we've seen all the buildings that have been built over the last five, seven, eight years. And so now these buildings are completed. We get to see firsthand what the results actually look like. What did the what jumped up the most in construction? What about the, on the operational side? What did, what revenue did or didn't they hit? What expenses didn't look like in the performa five years ago, right? So when we bet our borrowers' performance, we actually have real live data that we can we can back it up with. I mean, we have the largest database in the industry, so that type of information I think is is really relevant when you're trying to plan a development that you're going to have for a very long time or or even if you're going to just build it to flip it again you need to make sure if you, that's even more important because you need to be able to come up with numbers that are really close to your performance. Adam I'm going to jump in I know it's you next but I mean on top of that you know with that three billion dollar pipeline we also have clients that are looking for opportunities so you might have land but need equity like there's so many values to engaging you know, engaging us early that uh, that I think sometimes just gets missed in the in the whole process. And we are going to get to student housing next, as Adam kind of led at the very beginning. Andrew's got an extensive experience on student housing, and I'm actually really excited because I think it's a different, the conversation is going to have a different tone than you think it's going to. Before we get there, let's jump to one of the projects that you worked on recently, the well by Rio Can and Allied, just at the corner here, not far from you, at Spadina and Front. And so why don't we just kind of go through, Andrew, how you got involved and what, what was the part of the project that you worked on? You know, we started with, uh, I mean, Woodbourne's been a great client of ours for, for many years. They're a phenomenal group. And uh, we've had a, a relationship with Rio Can for, for a while, and it's now all come together into, into this deal. But, you know, this to me is the most impressive and iconic development in all of Canada. I mean, when you look at this picture, look at this site, you've got six buildings coming out of the ground at the same time as, a, as a, an office tower that has a million square feet on top of a podium that has 400,000 square feet of retail. And it's all being built at the same time. And, and on top of that, you've got this site sits on two 6 million liter storage tanks that basically service the heating and cooling for 20 million square feet in the downtown core. You know, this project is the first low carbon resilient cooling and heating system in Toronto's downtown. And, and it's literally now the benchmark for what energy usage will look like in major cities around the world. It, it truly is a, an amazing development. So out of these six towers, uh, the office towers separate, but out of the six residential towers, three are condos and three are rental. Two are owned by Woodbourne and the third one is owned by Woodbourne and Rio Can. And, you know, these are such iconic assets that you just, you have to believe that, that, that these borrowers plan on holding them long-term. They will, they will really be the type of assets that, you, that you're going to want to own forever. And that site will just be a, a master community in itself. Because they're going to be long-term holders, the strategy was, well, to enhance your returns, you should end up with CMHC takeout financing at the end of the day. And if you're going to do that, then you might as well start with CMHC construction financing to get better interest rates during construction. And then to be able to mitigate some of the risks we talked about earlier, like your interest rate risk, the takeout and and your leasing risk. So it it really is quite an impressive asset. We're so proud to have been part of this. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, uh, it's I love this picture. It just looks so good. And the construction is coming along really well. The towers are, are, uh, are getting built up quite a bit. Yeah, I, I've driven by it as recently as uh, a week ago and, and the, the just a hive of activity right now. I mean, obviously you have some, some miles to go given the size of it, but it is moving ahead at, uh, you know, full speed. For this project, you know, there's a lot of a lot of metrics that would you would not see in just your kind of standard issue apartment build. And a lot of apartment builds can be relatively cookie cutter, which then makes the financing relatively cookie cutter in the sense that the lenders love doing things that they've seen before. You know, a change is difficult in the lending world. I, uh, I hate to say it. So when you looked at financing this, what aspect of this incredible project broke the mold more than any other and that you had to you know, work with to accommodate from a finance perspective? Uh, there were a few. I mean, for starters, you know, you have, you don't own the land, right? So you've got land, you've got a, you've got parking, very deep parking lot, and then you've got your commercial podium on top of which all the buildings sit. So for starters, you have air rights, you know, you have a whole bunch of common elements that are being shared where the costs are being shared amongst the, the various buildings. From a, from a construction perspective, as a lender, you have to get your head around. If I'm just financing two out of the six buildings, then how does that work? What if in a worst case scenario, somebody ever went into default, how would that work? So it was, it was definitely challenging. But, and then, you know, this transaction where the developers bought the land, this was done about, it was agreed to about six years ago, but the closing only took place at the end of last year and into this year. So, you know, you can appreciate that the land has gone up tremendously in value between 20, 2016 and, and 2020. So that had to be taken into account as well. I mean, you, you certainly can't value the land as part of your construction budget at the price that it was it was purchased and agreed to in 2016 when the developers took on the risk of finishing the zoning, getting all of this agreed upon, all the, the construction costs split between the different parties. It definitely challenged us. But I think really this is about the board and, and what their long-term strategy was going to be. And again, it was a long-term hold, which meant we had to find a way to to get this approved by CMHC. And I mean, CMHC was great too. They they understood the value of this asset. You know, I mean, this this received the highest valuation uh, at CMHC and, and justifiably so. I mean, with this site in two years, when it's all built up, it's just going to be unbelievable. I'll add on to Adam's comment about driving downtown. I was downtown earlier this week, and that's kind of part of the fun part about not being downtown for six months or whatever it is. Then all of a sudden, there are these big buildings that have popped out of the ground where when you're downtown every day, you don't really notice the progress. And it is it already looks like a stunning building. Don't answer this question, Andrew, but I could just imagine when you're trying to figure out what land, what value of the land needs to be associated with the parcel or the air rights that you're trying to finance that's sitting on top of a retail podium. And just those formulas must have just been a nightmare and probably really entertaining and interesting at the same time. That's why we like doing finance. Why don't we move? We're running out of time. We're only got about 50 minutes left. I do want to get to student housing. So let's, let's jump to humanity quickly, Andrew, because I think unequivocally, this is the most complicated building that's ever been built in Canada. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we were, again, lucky to be part of this Humanity Montreal development uh, with our good friend Matthew Duguay from Cogier and, and his partners. This is another iconic project. I mean, this was 700,000 square feet of density in an amazing location, downtown Montreal, right across from the convention center. And to maximize that density, you know, they built a hotel, uh, condominiums, apartments, uh, so it ended up being a hotel with 189 units, uh, 150 condo units, 314 residential units, 60,000 square feet of office, and 20,000 square feet of retail, all essentially in one building. Uh, and again, from a, a construction perspective, and it's so complicated, and from a from a financing perspective, equally complicated because you essentially the project is so long that you can't do any condo pre-sales, you can't pre-lease any of the office, the retail, or the rental. Uh, and the hotel doesn't open until until it's done. So this was this was quite something. Now, in addition to this project being lead uh, and well certified, the, this whole project is designed to create this vertical, smart vertical community where the technology connects with both the the tenants and the the, techn- the technology of the building. So it, it really is quite something. I mean, to be able to live in that building and to have access to an amazing restaurant and and the gym and and all the different facets of that building, all the different pools and rooftop patios, the 
amazing lobbies and just the design of it all was was so exciting. We love being part of that. So, you know, that's an example where, you know, the construction had to be conventional financing because of the significant commercial component. At the same time, the borrowers, when we started this, weren't sure if they were going to end up owning the rental units long term. Uh, so we we arranged a, co- a conventional construction loan. And then at the end of the completion, at the end of the construction, you know, when you look at something so impressive, certainly you say, you know, I want to keep this. This is a this is a staple in 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 their impressive portfolio. And they decided to keep it. So we ended up going to CMHC to place the takeout financing. And again, I mean, it was a, it was a long process. But CMHC did a great job as well. Then same as the well air rights, you know, cost sharing, uh, you know, five different elements working together under the same parcel. Uh, very, very complicated, but very exciting. And uh, and at the end, you know, both of these projects, what they have in common is that they're both going to be essentially master communities, right? I mean, they're going to build their own area in which people live, work, and play. And, uh, and, and and quite impressive. I mean, just when you look at these buildings, they just look so good when, to the rest of the world. We're very excited to be part of that. So the, the building is clearly a work of art and the financing can be too, but nobody ever sees that except for the borrower. So you have to just take your accolades in the shadows for what uh, you've accomplished on that one. But very, very cool project. Congratulations on that. Let's move on to student housing. It's definitely a, uh, you know, a more of a niche product, but you've been very active in it in the last number of years. How has student housing development mirrored the apartment development trajectory we've seen over the last five to 10 years? Well, and wait, and wait, and Andrew, yeah, just so we're clear, we're, student housing is dead, right? Like student housing is, is, is dead in this, in this country. Is that correct? No, 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 no. It's alive. It's alive and kicking. It's going well. Listen, student housing has come a long way from when you guys went to school. Uh, let's just put yeah. it that way. I mean, look, traditionally, student housing, in my mind, is a misunderstood asset class because it used to be that guys like you partied a lot and, and destroyed the places. And then you were only there for six months or eight months, I guess, 12 in your case, Aaron. But you know, it, 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 it's very different now, right? I mean, the you have 12-month leases, you have parental guarantees, you have cross-tenant guarantees, you have full surveillance systems, you know, and then on top of that, these buildings are beautiful. They have great amenities and tenants are so privileged to be living there that there's no chance they're going to destroy, destroy these places. We started financing purpose-built financing, uh, purpose-built student housing about seven years ago. And at the time, there was some construction financing available, but not hardly any takeout financing. And, you know, we're fortunate to be the top lender and advisor to, to the top two operators, uh, Alignvest and Woodbourne. These guys combined own literally the best student housing buildings across the country. We realize that this is an operational business that has risk to it, but the people that do it well, the, the op- operators that do it well, you know, create they get to leverage their brand and create a lot of operational synergies. I think it's evolved much like rental buildings because it's driven by the tenant demand. It's driven by the tenant experience. It's what they want to see. You know, when you look at these buildings and the way they're built today, it's really unbelievable. I mean, the amenities are, you know, they have gyms, they have basketball courts, they have study rooms and video game rooms. They have beautiful lobbies, rooftop patios. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And from a technological perspective, you know, let's not forget, I mean, everybody has an iPad and an iPhone and working from home or studying laptops. I mean, there's a lot of technological capacity that has to go into the construction of these buildings. You know, old buildings just don't match up the same way. You know, when you look at the, the tenants that, that want these buildings, you know, you've got uh, international students, you've got, you know, kids, Canadian kids that have parents that want to spoil them, you know, and, and if they have to pay an extra $100 a month, they will because, you know, they want them to be in safe buildings where there's indoor parking, where there's 24-hour security, you know, and again, they have all the amenities, right? So these, uh, I absolutely love this asset class. I just think there's so much upside in it. Not a lot of people know about it, but the, the upside is really along the lines of when you look at your opportunity for real estate investment and you look at the different asset classes and you say, look, if we live right now in a world of inflationary expectations and we believe what the economic pundits are saying around the world, that you know we're going to have inflation. This is the only asset class that protects you against inflation. It gives you unique protection because you have fifty percent annual turnover. So you know when we're talking about those apartment buildings, the the older uh, stock that where rents are below market, you get single digits turnover. Right, you turn over maybe five ten percent of your tenants a year. In retail and office and industrial, you sign five ten year leases with your tenants. There's no 
real step ups, right? And if anything, over time, the additional rents are adding up and the gross rent becomes so significant for those tenants that they can't really pay much more net rent, you know, down the road. With student housing, you have 50% annual turnover, so you can take advantage of rent increases. And when you look at your customers, you're looking at international students who are not price sensitive. And you're looking at parents who say, you know, little Aaron is now in university for three or four years. I don't mind paying a little bit more for them to live in the best building. So again, they're not all that price sensitive either. So you have the upside of the rent, and then you have the ability to turn over your tenants, which makes a big difference. For the record, I had to be an RA just to afford uh, living accommodations because my parents wouldn't pay for anything. But uh, hopefully my, my father's not listening to this. Let's just talk about, I mean, I made the joke at the front about, you know, student housing is dead. And, and really, that's just a comment on the fact that, you know, for a long time, we've been hearing about oversaturation of the marketplace. There's too much being developed. Drive around Laurier U of W up in Waterloo. And there's, there's, you know, at one point, like 25 buildings under construction. Everybody thought that market was going to crash. It never did. It seemed to occur, you know, in McGill and downtown and Montreal. There's lots of locations where it seemed like there was a lot of development. But it, it, it appears the demand is still outperforming that supply. Yeah, I mean, I, when I got started in, in financing student housing seven years ago, I used to hear how Waterloo is overbuilt. And, and that was maybe 30 buildings ago. You know, I can tell you that we financed few uh, high-end, you know, newer, bigger is there, you know, in the last three to six months. And all of these buildings are fully leased. Again, it speaks to the quality of the buildings, the amenities they have, and the desire of the tenants to want the best buildings. You know, this is very different. I mean, it's not it's not shared housing. It's not basement apartments. These are purpose-built buildings that have been built for the, for that reason. And, you know, when you look at Canadian universities, I mean, these are some of the best universities in the world. We have a lot of international students that, that have chosen Canada as their destination of, of education. We have Canadian enrollment that continues to go up every year. And then when you look at what's happened over the last year and a half, I mean, people have lost jobs. A lot of people are going to go back to school. You know, they will want to to retrain and, and acquire a new skill set. So back to university. And frankly, nobody can now just go to high school anymore, right? You need university. You need your university degree. So enrollment continues to go up. The desire for Canadian universities continues to remain strong. And as a result of that, the demand from these tenants for these buildings remains high. So in my opinion, in all the markets that we've seen, the good buildings are all fully leased. We don't see any real threat of vacancy unless there's something wrong with the building. And, you know, you're dealing with students who are going to be able to spread the word. So if your building is not good, you're going to hear about it fairly quickly. If your building is good, there's going to be a lineup waiting for, you know, people waiting to lease it. You know, you mentioned the, the good buildings being full, but buildings with large exposure to international students, I know that they have struggled in the, the last year. So can you comment on what we're seeing with you know even the good operators, how they're riding out this uh, significant dip in the international students, and how fast do you think the bounce back will be? Yeah, I mean, it, it matters if you're an institutional investor that has deep pockets and has certainly has equity set aside and cash reserves. The ones that have struggled would be the developers. That would be the what I call the merchant developers that just built them to you know to sell, and they got caught maybe with a lot of debt. And now all of a sudden you have a year where where the vacancy has increased because not all of these students have been able to come back. You know the buildings that we've seen with our borrowers have have tended to be okay. I mean a lot of the international students did not end up leaving last year. They were worried they may not get back in the country. So even though the schools ended. They stayed in the country. So a lot of the buildings still had very good occupancy. A lot of the tenants still pay their rents. I mean, they know they can't just skip rent. They won't be able to get back in next year. So, you know, it was certainly a year unlike any others with across a lot of the asset classes, right, where where landlords have suffered from, from cash flow disruptions. But for the most part, with our clients, the buildings that we've seen have been able to to maintain their occupancy. And certainly the collections were were very high. You know, I think going forward, I mean, look, all the universities have announced their plans to open in person, whether it's at reduced capacity or full capacity. That will depend on what the vaccinations look like over the next three, four months. But certainly, I mean, we know what it's like working from home. Yes, we can make it work, but it's not the same as as being around people in the office. It's the same thing with students and even more so. I mean, yes, you can study from home. No, you don't have the same Wi-Fi capability. No, hanging out with mom and dad and your sister is not the same as hanging out with your buds. You know, you can't be, you know, even if you're not physically in class, you're around your your fellow students, you're around your friends. And from a social perspective, it makes a big difference. So 
Now, you know, I, I expect all these buildings, again, the good ones to be fully leased between the announcements of the schools opening, you know, and, and the vaccines. I, I think a lot of them are going to be are going to be fully occupied fairly soon. Andrew, you didn't get the number out, uh, but you shared it with us before we kind of went live. That it's 650,000 foreign students that come to Canada right. on an annual basis. And that's just an incredible number. If you think about a population of 35 million, you know, that's like two, three percent increase in our population just with foreign students. And so I think that's a really important kind of component to this story. We're running out of time, but you've got a couple of slides. Do you want to just sort of profile some of the, the, the student housing projects that you've worked sure. on? Sure. I mean, we, we have, uh, I mean, just because we're talking about amenities, I mean, these are these are really cool looking buildings. I'd want to go there. Certainly when I went to school, it didn't look like that. But, you know, there's really good liquidity, both on the debt and the equity side. This was a building that we financed in Ottawa, and we were able to get CMHC on side for this. This is called the Annex in Ottawa. It's a beautiful building that was built in 2019. Not only does it look good and it's in a great location, fully occupied, but it's also managed by the University of Ottawa. So our clients, Alignvest, got the university on board to be their managers. So, so think of that, right? Not only are you in a very tight market in a beautiful building with great amenities, with a Starbucks at the bottom and an Anytime Fitness, but you also get the university to manage this for you. So where's the risk in this, right? I mean, this is going to be fully leased in perpetuity. So, you know, it, there's a lot of liquidity in this asset class, both from the equity side. You know, we're, we've got a couple of large Canadian pension funds that have invested heavily in student housing, not in Canada, because Canada remains a fragmented market, but in the US and the UK. So we, we know that that money will eventually find its way here as well. And on the debt side, I mean, you know, five to seven years ago, it was just us doing the, the takeout financing. Now we've got you know, multiple Schedule A banks, we have life companies, we have pension funds that are, that are uh, you know, placing debt in this asset class. And now we've got CMHC, you know, on assets like this one. You know, it's a, it's a very liquid asset class. And, and when you look at their cap rates, I mean, you know, cap rates in this asset class are still in the 5 to to 6% range. But now your financing has dropped to, you know, 25 2.75%. 3% for longer term deals. So you've got a pretty healthy spread there over your cost of financing. So to that point, though, though Andrew, I've spoken with a number of apartment developers over the year. We're looking at their pro forma and you know, maybe they're coming out of condo development and they're not you know, loving apartments uh, the way that they should. And then they'll start exploring student housing. And of course, the big attraction is bigger rent per square foot. Uh, you're getting uh, you know, better ability to a better, a better yield. So all around, it looks fantastic. But can you talk about you know, what you're what you're giving in order to get that how much more intensive the management is how different it is operating one of those versus a traditional apartment oh listen it's it's like i said earlier it's very much an operational business you know it's uh you know you've got very demanding tenants uh you do have to keep track of them they uh, they know what they want they're vocal about it you have to be a very good operator to understand that and, and if you don't understand that business then either get a really good manager. There are a couple of them out there that specialize in managing student housing properties. Or if you're just a developer, then uh, partner up with one of the existing big players that will be happy to come in and do a forward deal with you on the development, you know, to take you out or, or to be partners with you at the end of construction. And, and we see that happening quite a bit. I mean, you definitely have to know how to manage this or use an experienced manager because it is, like I said, an operational business and it does require a different level of, of management uh, than, than regular apartment buildings. You know, we uh, interviewed one of your good friends, Andrew Brian Kimmel, a couple of months ago, and he's famous for always advertising, if you want to build retirement buildings, just don't. Don't do it. It's, it's, it's really, really hard, he always says. I don't know if student housing falls in the exact same category, but it's similar. You better know what the heck you're doing or you're going to end up with a really hard, hard lesson learned. Andrew, we're out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. Of course, thanks to the Canadian Real Estate Forum and, and Ref Club. Again, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we kind of digest the conversation that we just had with Andrew. We said it during the podcast and afterwards. We've got so much respect for this guy. And the exposure that he's had in the industry, whether it's through Maury or just you know the clients that that he advises, I mean, I find some of the stuff that he gets exposed to really, really interesting. I mean, maybe let's just focus on the humanity for a second. And I'll, I'd encourage anybody listening that was listening originally 
to search humanity, H-U-M-A-N-I-T-I in Montreal. I mean, Andrew said it, the most complex, I mean, real estate development in Canadian history. And he's not, he's not exaggerating. Like, go look at it. It's insane. It's, it's literally got a little bit of every asset class, maybe save it except for like fulfillment center. And, you know, wait five years until drones are picking up and dropping off packages and that'll be included. Like it, it literally has got every asset class in it. It's the, the jambalaya of uh, real estate, you know, just, <laughs> just everything put into it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the underwriting would be interesting. If nothing else, lenders like calm, cool and predictable. And when you start getting into anything innovative, it can be a little tougher to get finance. I mean, it's, you know, kind of the harsh reality. It can take a little more, a little more brain work, a little more creativity, to get it done. Because lenders love pointing backwards and saying, well, this is what we did it last time. That's, that was a pretty cool project. Well, you know what? And let's talk about that for a second. I mean, you and I have done these Adam and Aaron Finance 101s. And we'll probably do a 201 or 200 level course someday soon. But when you get assets that have multi-purpose or multi-use, it starts to get really complicated from a debt underwriting perspective. Because what you want to do is you want to... You love this word. You want to bifurcate the the asset into these nice, simple underwriting. So if there's, in this case, there's office, hotel, condo, apartments, and some retail, you want to take the retail and say, okay, what's the cash flow? What are the expenses? Come up with an NOI, add a cap rate. You want to take the hotel, right? What's the, what's the, what's the revenue? What's the expenses? Take a cap rate, come up with a value. And you want to do that in a really kind of segregated, separate, nice, simple silo way. Which in reality, it just doesn't work like that, right? Like you can't just, I mean, the, the utilities are not broken down specifically by vertical of that asset class. Taxes are not added up based on, you know, what's the hotel taxes versus the retail taxes versus the, the office taxes. So it becomes very, very complicated. And I think, like you said, like lenders just like things to be simple. Don't make me work too hard. I'm only making two and a half percent of my my money. Like it shouldn't be complicated, right? But um, something like that is very, very complicated. And Andrew does an incredible job. Him and his team do an incredible job sort of tackling those challenges. Well, the one other piece too, we kind of talked about a lot of the expenses there is on the income side as well. You've got, you know, you could have a 15 year office lease combined with, you know, the seasonal wild fluctuations of a hotel operation, you know, very uneven cash flows, something else that lenders don't like. or you know, if, if somebody's going to finance something with fluctuating cash flows, there's a fund dedicated to just that. And that's, that's a totally different fund than what you'd look at if you're going to do financing tied to, you know, five-year term of a 15-year of a office lease, you know, where it's super predictable. So it really is just kind of uh, throwing a lot into the, the mixing pot. And I mean, you can, you can absolutely get these deals done, but it requires a lot more, a lot more uh, brain power in order to do it. And then there's the well, which we, we kind of only touched on. Honestly, to be to be frank, like I think the well is a little bit simpler because you know the way that it's been kind of structured is the, and the way they were going into it with with the different ownership groups, whether there's Allied and Rio Can, and I think it's Well Tower is the other one. I, I I can't remember the name, but they've kind of split it up so that it's like, okay, well, this is mine, that's yours. I get apartments. So when you get an approach, it's like, okay, well. Here's my parcel. Here's what I'm building. Here's the cash flow. It's not necessarily, well, it's a multi-use, multi-purpose development at large and an incredible development. Maybe not as complex to financing as something like, like the humanity. Yeah, that one, uh, that one a little easier for the lenders in terms of siloing it. But again, you're also talking about a project, at least from the apartment side where, where Andrew was involved, that you're talking about, you know, they're trying to establish the new high water mark for apartments in the city and you know, that can always give uh, lenders a little heartburn too. We're, we're a very uh, sensitive bunch, you know, we, we, we spook easily. So anything well, that's going to be well, well outside the lines when you're drawing are going to be, it's going to be a little tough. Well, and I mean, I mean, you know what a scary word in lending is shared facilities agreement. I, whenever I hear yeah. shared facilities agreements, like, oh no, what's this going to entail? Because it means like, you know, you're sharing parking, you're sharing access, you're sharing like whatever it is, sharing common space, whether it be, you know, I mean, who knows, gyms or whatever. And you've got to start working through who gets access to what and how does it work. And sometimes I think our clients say, yeah, yeah, and whatever, like, you know, they'll agree to it. But as lenders, if I'm putting out a deal at a 30-year amortization or a 40-year amortization in theory, like we're in that deal for 40 years. It's not a five-year term, it's a 40-year am. And chances are my client may sell it, may get assumed, may be a different client. So those things need to be buttoned down. 
just from a risk profile, again, like our, our, our yields are like from a lending perspective, our yields are, you know, two, three, maybe 4% based on, you know, the quality of the asset. And so when you're doing that, it's a, it's a low risk profile. That's just the reality that I think sometimes gets lost. Right. So it, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. The other big takeaway we talked about at the end of that podcast was student housing. It's, uh, it's funny. I mean, we kind of touched on it in the, in the, the main part of the podcast, but looks on paper, very similar to apartments, but totally different. And by apartments, I mean, uh, market rent, traditional apartments. We're talking about there must be not student housing. It, uh, it does perform so differently. One, it resets to market every single year, virtually, because people are typically only doing one year leases and then they vacate where obviously in, uh, you know, market rent apartments, people can live there for 15 years. Cash flows can be, you know, quite uneven. Your management and R&M are going to be way higher and you're going to, you're going to earn it. You know, it's, I, uh, I remember hearing quite a while ago, some of the complaints from management with student housing. And yeah, the reality is you're, you're managing, you know, people that are typically 19 years old and they're going to behave quite differently than if you're managing an apartment full of 55 year olds. It's just the, the nature of people's progression in their lives. And so uh, Andrew did say the same thing about student housing. Uh, Brian Kimmel on a previous podcast said about uh, seniors is if you're in apartments and you're just uh, looking for something a little more yield and you start eyeballing either student or seniors, don't, you know, like, you're, yes, you're going to get more yield, but you're, you're going to earn it. It's not just a, it's not just a, you know, show up and pick up an extra 200 beeps of uh, yield is you're going to, you're going to pay for it and blood learning to adapt to that new asset class. And you know, what I find really fascinating about that is like the Delta between, I mean, this is all very sort of anecdotal and notional, of course, but the, the Delta between apartment cap rates and retirement home cap rates, well, the difference is compressed. There's just a line where I think just people aren't willing to pay a certain amount for retirement homes because I think it's been ingrained now in the real estate community at large that you know, retirement homes are not easy. Like they really are. And it's in large part to people like Brian being like, just don't do it. If you don't have the expertise, don't do it. And I'm not sure there's been the same kind of screaming from the rooftops like that in in student housing. And it sounds like, you know, just what I'm seeing in the marketplace is that the student housing yields, the cap rates on student housing is getting really close to those in our apartments. Like people aren't necessarily distinguishing, quite frankly, the amount of effort it takes one versus the other. Not that apartments aren't easy to manage, of course, but like you said, like there's just more, there's just more to it. There's just way more management experience and challenges and and drain on resources to managing a student housing than than there is to a to a, a standard apartment building and i'm not sure people necessarily appreciate that as you know in this incredibly liquid market everybody's just sort of chasing yield i think both of them did say Brian says, don't do it. What he's really saying is find a partner that knows how to do it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Maybe it's not or, an asset class to stay away from, but find the right partner. He's saying, he's saying, call me and I'll help you with it. That's what he's saying, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah there's a shameless first national plug. We're happy to help you. Just give us a call, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's our ending note. I think that's yeah, the note go. we want to go out on. That uh, shameless plug. Like it. Yeah. All right, Eric, thanks for uh, highlighting our expertise. <laughs> to everybody for listening this far, it's, uh, I'm glad you could join us. Oh, for clarity, don't call Adam and I. We're not, we can't help you. Call, actually, call Adam, don't call me. That's fine. There you go. Um, I was about to edit that part out, but now we'll leave it in because you did uh, <laughs> you save yourself. All right, everybody. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.